0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you now until midday. We have a couple of fantastic guests uh, coming in in a few minutes, and uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. How are you going?
2: I'm well, thanks, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good. It's just us. It's just us today. Yes, we had a few other people who were going to interrogate our guests, but it's too sunny, so they are, they're off doing other things, but that's fine. I'm <laughs> very excited uh, to be here. Yeah, we can a, a bit awestruck today. We've got two very exciting guests coming up, so we, we I'm looking do. forward to learning.
1: We do. And I should say, uh, it's interesting, actually, because I got in the, um, in the mail today the uh, Australian weather calendar from the Bureau of Meteorology. Oh, yes. Um, which, you know, our... I guess we're going to introduce in a moment. It will be relevant, but um, I was I was lashing Dr. Ewan over the weekend because he was he was spruiking a new ecology calendar, which just looks fantastic. And I said, "Well, you know, these things are using a lot of paper. Should we be having these calendars?" And I'm a bit torn because now I've received this amazing calendar from the bureau, yeah. which is and I, look, I love these calendars, and I've got some pictures up on my wall at my office at work. And people come in and they say, "Oh, did you take those photos?" I say, "No, no, no. Uh, they're from one of the old." Bureau calendars and, you know, I don't throw them out. I tend to cut the photos out and laminate them because they're just gorgeous. They're
2: beautiful, aren't they? I have several years of Bureau calendars in my study at home. And every year I think the requests from my friends get bigger and bigger. Oh, can you just get one for me? Can you get one for my mum? Can you get one for my dad? So I'm going to be taking home a box coming up to Christmas. Yeah,
1: they are cool. And so this new calendar was uh, released just on Wednesday Mm -hmm. this week. Um, So if people want to get a hold of it, they can go there. I didn't know this part of the Bureau exists, but it's shop.bomb.gov.au yes, I didn't yep. know they had a shop.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the Bureau calendar is a bit of an institution, so they've yeah. got a set up where you can order them and get them delivered, and you can also go to the Bureau's head office on Collins Street. It's right near Southern Cross Station, and oh, yeah. there is a shop there from 9 to 5. Yeah. They're yeah. still pretty affordable too, an excellent Christmas present.
1: All yeah, right. look, they're, they're cool. They're great pictures. So um, just try to pretend it's not on paper. <laughs> <laughs> or keep
2: them. Keep them. Using well, Ewan's going to
1: absolutely flame me over this because I gave him heaps of grief. And, uh, oh, so Ewan
2: say, has a Ecology Society of Australia calendar. Yeah,
1: I'm not sure which, yeah, is it the Ecology Society? It's, yeah. it's beautiful. It's it really, is really is impressive.
2: Their cover is a picture of an echidna in snow. Yeah. I mean, the Bureau calendar is better, I would say, objectively, <laughs> but the Ecology
3: Society of
1: Australia calendar so is where do you
3: work? very good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: uh, look, some of these are great they they they're nice to have up and um my kids love them anyway in the studio now with us actually from the bureau of meteorology is the chief data officer Anthony Ray welcome
3: to Triple R good morning Shane great to be here look uh, you you got one of these calendars oh, i haven't got the new one yet i mean like like linda and i have a large number of old calendars <laughs> at home that i don't know what to do with <laughs> um, right? it's yeah. it is an institution um and the, the the print run of the calendar is actually it's it's enormous um, is it? yeah yeah, I always wonder because
1: nice I've got a family friend who takes amazing landscape photos. You know, it seems to be his thing now. He's retired, and whenever he's out, he takes these amazing photos. And always, you know, he sends them, or he puts them up on Facebook. And I say, you should send that to the bureau, <laughs> which he doesn't. What? But, um, yeah, I know. What he takes way. these amazing, really great color. He's right into it. Fantastic stuff, and it's of the similar quality. It's just, um, it's great stuff. Anyway, uh, now Anthony, let's talk about your position, Chief Data Officer. What? A, what does that
3: mean yeah it's a new it's a new role for the bureau um, and it recognizes I think uh, the, the 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 nature of data within the organization the fact that it actually underpins everything mm. that we do um, so it's a it's a role that's about data governance data quality uh, data policy also some of the partnerships so the bureau is very reliant on uh, other agencies, whether that be satellite operators or operators of, let's say, flood warning equipment or whatever, so we bring in a, a huge amount of data every mm-hmm. day, and that kind of flows through uh, our our models and our, our uh, assimilation systems and so on, and generates all of the all of the products that uh, that the public um, consume and love. Uh, and uh, you know, we, it's it's also a very serious role because uh, you know the climate record, of course, is is very important. And uh, the bureau is the custodian uh, of of that record. You know, over a hundred years of, of of records for Australia, mm. which are, are so important in terms of understanding mm. our climate and how it might be changing.
1: How, how do you guys store your data? Because I can imagine, just on a daily basis, I, I'm not sure if you have this number in your head, but I'm assuming it's in the terabytes range per
3: day, and you've got to keep it. Where does it Where does it all go? Yeah, it is in the terabytes per day. Um, You know, just probably the satellite data alone would be close to a terabyte a Mm. a day. And then you've got, um, you know, uh, meteorology is a global global endeavour and uh, we rely on uh, observations, not just not just our own observations, but uh, observations from all of the other MET services around the world and they're all being exchanged uh, in real time uh, under the kind of arrangements of the World Meteorological Organization. And uh, so we, we bring all this in and we need to process it very, very quickly. Um, you know the the meteorological data. It's it's kind of instantaneous if you like. You know, we take yeah. an instantaneous snapshot of of the global uh, weather situation. We chuck that into our models, and then that runs forward, and 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 that produces the the, the seven day forecasts and and you know all of the other products in between. Um, so the data comes in, and, and it's pretty much on spinning disk in real time. But we keep everything really, particularly observational data. We keep everything in in as raw a form as we can, and that eventually goes onto a, a quite a large tape library that's in a in a data center that, that's offsite now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty amazing actually. It's a bit like you know I don't know. Uh, it's it's a bit like a science fiction movie. You know, yeah, there's yeah. a robot arm that goes in and pull, yeah. pulls the tape out and, and puts it into the reader. And you know, once if, the, if data needs to be accessed, so yeah, there's a huge amount of data. Our holdings would be in the petabytes. Well, wow. I think mm. uh, the bureau is probably the, the the largest holder of data within the within the Commonwealth government anyway, aside from defence. Mm.
2: Wow. And just thinking before we move on, I know there's lots of exciting different types of data, but I'm just stuck on these tapes. How are the Bureau working towards kind of future-proofing those? Obviously, you know, people who have floppy, floppy disks, disks now, they don't really know how to deal with those. Is there kind of a future-proofing plan or different formats that the data are stored
3: in? Yeah, it's a real. that's a really good question. And, you know, part of my role is also doing some of that future proofing so you know technology moves pretty quickly and you know a version of tape that might be available now uh might not be available in a few Mm. years time so we need to be continually thinking about you know what's what's the next thing and currently i think on a on a cost per per petabyte basis tape is still is still the way to go um but but yeah we need to be able to to transfer to new new storage mediums as they, media, as they come along. But, you know, we also need to make sure that we've got the software to be able to read the data as it was stored mm-hmm. um, when it was originally recorded. And that, and that can be a, a real issue. So uh, the, the metadata, the data that describes the data, is is so important. In fact, one of my staff, I hope she won't mind me saying this, but she said that uh, metadata is a love letter to the future. Oh.
2: Uh, <laughs> That's uh, lovely. That's
3: yeah. So it, it is it it is we take we take that kind of custodianship and stewardship very seriously.
1: Yeah. And we we're talking about it, I suppose a lot of it is what would be termed cold storage wouldn't it? So this is the stuff like and this where you use tapes. They're slow to read, but you can store vast quantities of information. With the idealism that they're not read every day, that you know, you might dig it up in a month, or Lyndon here might, you know, she looks after old data,
3: um, might go looking for it. But but a lot of it's cold storage. That's right. So the the, the historical stuff, the climate mm-hmm. record, and let's say, you know, the, the the data, really, the data that's used to generate uh, the the modelling and the the, uh, the the analysis every day, that does get put aside, and it is, like you say, in cold storage. But it but it is accessible. It's mm-hmm. not moved. You know, yep. it's it's still readable. So the tapes, you know, you can access it within you know within minutes or or hours if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's interesting to me
1: the way the date the data level changes. So I, I correct me if I'm wrong here, but they have this sort of image that you know if you said here's all the data from 1976, you might give me a little yep. portable hard drive. Um, whereas if I said where's the data for 2017, you're you rocking with this massive server with just you know arrays of of um, sort of storage media in there. I mean, how how much is it accelerating?
3: It it is exponential, it's not an exaggeration, it it is increasing exponentially and so far, uh, like Moore's law has has allowed us to keep up, you know, the the rate of increase of storage per dollar has roughly kept pace um, with with our our holdings. but it is always a challenge and you're always kind of pushing pushing the limits and at some stage, particularly with our model output, so the observational data, you know, we can we can try and keep all of that. But the models, uh, particularly the new versions of, of the models and the, we got city-based models that will be updating every hour at a pretty high resolution, these are going to be generating petabytes Per, per day potentially mm. uh, or maybe not per day but but uh, it is a huge amount of data and we can't actually keep all of that output. Yep. So we, we need to make some choices as well about what we keep and what yeah. we don't. The, the mix of the data, Anthony, I mean, in the past I, I
1: assume there would, you know, Guys like me, you know, out there with a pen and paper, you know, recording yeah. temperatures and stuff. But these days, presumably a, a large portion of this is satellite data or remote data that's not even sensed on the ground, you know, that's from either satellites or or from either other, as you said, other organisations. Yeah. Um, and what is the sort of percentage of that split now? Because it, it
3: seems as though... Everything is coming from outer space these days. Yeah. Uh, I think you know, our, our models wouldn't run without without satellites, that's clear. Um, when we look at the, the data used within the access model, which is a model that we run to to generate our forecasts, <coughs> about ninety five percent of the data used is from satellites and the rest mm. would be Uh, You know, surface weather stations, we've got about 700 of those. Uh, Upper air balloon stations, so we're launching weather balloons and every other Met service around the world is launching weather balloons every day. Um, So, but satellites is does dominate and because of australia's position in the southern hemisphere we're surrounded by ocean it's very hard to get in situ observations out there so mm. satellites for us are actually more important than than for met services in the northern hemisphere in fact we did some experiments um, my phd supervisor john lamarshall did some experiments where we just took the satellite data out of the model and then you basically lost four or five days of predictability by doing right? it yeah wow
1: so back to a three-day forecast. Yeah. So you just stick your finger out the window kind of thing. <laughs> Pretty much. <Yeah. laughs>
0: um,
2: Anthony, can you tell us a little bit more about the breakdown of these kinds of satellites? Not a satellite breaking down. I said that badly. I mean, uh, you know, how many satellites are we talking about? Is there one satellite that shows us everything or do we have satellites for heat, satellites for rain, satellites yeah. for temperature?
3: It's more like what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually, the, 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 the physics of the model and the way that the model represents the atmosphere, uh, and the Earth's surface means that we can translate pretty much any satellite observation into the physics of the model. And so we use, I think, at the last count it was twenty-three or twenty-four different instruments uh, in in the in the bureau's weather models. And that would range from uh, microwave sounders that are that are taking uh, temperature and humidity measurements, sort of down through the atmosphere. Uh, uh, hyperspectral sounders that are looking at the infrared signature of the atmosphere over a quite a quite a wide uh, range of, of frequencies. We, and they're from polar orbit. In, in geostationary orbit, we've got, uh, we rely heavily on Japan uh, and their Himawari 8 satellite. That's taking images of the entire kind of part of the globe that it can they're see. They're
2: those, the beautiful images that you Absolutely. can see on the Bureau's website, yeah. right? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Um, every 10 minutes. But we... We, this is my area of research actually, back when I actually used to do research, uh, we can take those images and, and look at how the clouds are moving from one image to the next and turn that into a measurement of wind and that gets assimilated into the model as well. So the, there's a wide range actually and then there's, there's other sensors that are doing sea surface temperature and things like that. So, you know, surface altimetry, the, the, it's, it's really a, a huge mix. When you look at all the data,
1: I can imagine this is a bit like the health system in that there's some data, as you say, with some of the satellite data, which would be you know just pure, just really nice quality data. But there must be some very low-grade data that you have, to, you have to collect that's valuable. But how, how do you determine the quality of the data and whether or not you know, it needs to be cleaned up, et cetera,
3: before it's utilised? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a really quite a large international science community uh, around this, and so for the for the different satellite centres, that there tend to be groups of scientists who are really focused on this uh, across across the different, uh, particularly the, the the global numerical weather prediction centres, um, so, and they get together, you know, and uh, they. they they do science on this, so mm. they they analyse uh, how the data might be impacted. So there's a yeah, there's a lot of work to do before you put a new sensor into into the model, and you really need to do a lot of parallel trials to make sure that a the data is of decent quality, and b um, that 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 it's not having negative impact on the model. So you need to understand the physics and how the mm. how the how the data is going to impact, and then and then it can be assimilated. Um, with the limited time, limited lifespan of some satellite missions, this can be a real problem because you can spend, you know, the first year of life of the satellite just getting the data yeah, right. ready to yeah. go in. So there's a, there's a push to try and do this uh, as quickly as possible, um, and there's work that's done actually with the satellite operas, operators to make sure that they provide as much data as they can, even if it's synthetic data before launch, so that it can be kind of tested and all of the systems can be ready to go. Mm-hmm.
2: That's amazing. So, speaking of satellites, and I have a feeling that you guys might have met at a space congress recently. Is that correct?
1: Well, we we, we communicated as a result of the space ah, congress. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I wasn't there. Anthony was there. I think Yeah, I was. Yeah, Yeah,
3: was you it there? the, yeah, the, the IAC. So you, uh, in Adelaide.
2: Yeah. yeah, you say that a lot. Of our satellite information comes from uh, other countries' satellites, particularly Japan. This new exciting space agency that's being launched in Australia. How do you think that's going to help us with? With weather forecasting and, and understanding our atmosphere.
3: Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's it's not quite clear yet what the what what size and shape the space agency mm. will take. There's a there's an expert panel led by Megan Clark, who's the former head of CSIRO, um, and there's a bunch of kind of people from from the Commonwealth uh, and from from industry and from research who are on that panel. Um, They've got a charter to basically look at the at the scope, if you like, or the charter for this space agency. They'll be delivering that in, in March. You know, if I had to speculate, I'd say, you know, international coordination will be one thing that they'll be focusing on. So one of the reasons why I was at the International Astronautic Congress is because Australia doesn't have a space agency. So when we're dealing with, uh, let's say, NASA or ESA, It tends to it tends to be you know the the Bureau of Meteorology might do a bit, Geoscience Australia might do a bit, uh, CSIRO Mm. might do a bit, but there's no no coordination.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we were, I I understand we're the last of the OECD countries to. Get a space agency. That may be possible. Yeah. May be, yeah. That may be. That may Yeah, um, I think you yeah. could be right there. Yeah, I think Turkey beat us. Um, you know, we spend so much money in this industry, though. You know, it's, it seems um, crazy that we're not involved in that in
3: that way. It, so. It's a massive. It's a massive industry, and it's growing mm-hmm. year on year. And you know that some of the changes that we've seen recently, particularly uh, companies like SpaceX, the the cost of, of, mm-hmm. of getting things to orbit, the the economics of, of space, has really. Uh, Turning around.
2: So, you think because I'm quite fascinated by this, and I imagine just all these satellites up in space, and every country wanting to put their own Mm. satellite up in space, it would end up being economical and effective for us to have our own system as opposed to using systems that other countries have already put together.
3: It could, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if down the track... You know, right now there are no Australian Earth observations from space satellites, but but it could be down the track, I think, and the Space Agency would be a mechanism to allow that to happen. Um... In the meteorology space, I'm not really sure. I think we're well served by 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 other countries. You know, there are big global systems uh, run by the Europeans, by the US, and and increasingly by China, and we're very reliant on those. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Maybe we just put a couple of little cube sets up. Measure the temperature. Yeah. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for coming in today. It's great to talk about this stuff. And I, I suppose a lot, a lot of people just don't think about the back end of, you know, the little app they have and all the data behind it and the incredible amount that you guys collect on a, on a daily basis. And and it's it's in the range I was thinking, which in itself is, even even though I suggested it was, it's still surprising because it's just a huge, huge collection you guys do. Um, good luck with the ongoing work there and um, and thanks for chatting. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks, Linda. Anthony Ray is the Chief Data Officer from the Bureau of Meteorology.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio of me is Dr. Linden, and we are very, very happy to have with us Professor Jenny Graves, who is the winner of this year's Prime Minister's Prize for Science and from La Trobe University. Jenny, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Shane. Look, first of all, congratulations. This is a it's a huge accolade that Obviously, only one person gets a year. Um, for how long has the PM's Prize been going on? Do, do you,
0: are you aware... Uh, since about 2000, I believe, there was a prize before that called the Australia Prize, because yeah. it was an international prize, so a little bit different.
1: Hmm. Now, you're, I, I mean, I, in a sense, over the next sort of 20, 25 minutes, I just want to hear everything about your career because we've got to sort of unpack a bit why you were given this award. Um, you, in particular, have been working on the sort of genetics and, and so forth and the evolution of mammals, and particularly Australian mammals. I want to talk about them first up because I just, I, I mean, to me, it's sort of like... We got the bits that no one else got, right? I mean, you, you must, I mean, do you have a few favourites here? I mean,
0: what, what mammals just blow you away in terms of their differences? Well, Australian mammals have got so many differences, but I think I'd have to mark up the platypus yeah. as the really, really weirdest mammal around. But we've got wonderful reptiles too mm. and wonderful birds. And, of course, the, the big thing is that they evolved separately for a very long time in Australia. So that makes them very different, and that's where I come in because differences are really the lifeblood of genetics. Mm. Now, let's
1: talk about the platypus because it's something, if if I think back, you know, with some animals, I can kind of in my mind, I'm a physicist, by the way, so, you know, you've got to be kind, but I can sort of think, yeah, I can see where that evolved from. When I look at the platypus, I'm lost. I mean, where's the where's it sort of come from?
0: Well, I guess all mammals uh, essentially evolved from a reptile branch mm. and platypus have still retained some reptilian features. I mean, you know that platypuses lay eggs, yeah. of course, like yeah. snakes and yeah. birds, but they also have a skeleton that's much more like a lizard than like a dog. You know, the legs stick out rather than oh, down. Is that right? Yeah, so wow. you can still see their reptile ancestry, although they are clearly mammals. They have and they suckle their young with milk. Mm.
2: And why do you think that Australia is the home for these crazy monotremes, these platypus and echidna? What's unique about Australia
0: that, has made them this way, do you think? Well, probably that's where they began, Uh, probably in Gondwana land. There has been a tooth seen in South America that looks like a platypus tooth. Oh, really? Which is funny because platypus don't have teeth (laughs) anymore. So how did they know that it might have been a platypus tooth? Well, they have fossil evidence, Uh. and I'm not an expert on teeth, but apparently teeth tell you everything about a
1: a mammal. Yeah, a, a guy once said to me, I think it was on the show, he said, You know, give me a tooth and I'll show you what car it drove. <laughs> and was it like? Because it's everything's
0: in the teeth. Absolutely. Because wow. they're
1: like tree rings in some cases, aren't they, <laughs> for animals? Like you can you can see the growth over periods. You yes, can see, see how they. Yeah, I think yeah. you
0: can see the growth, you can see the points, and you can see where the, what what this creature ate. You know, little things, big things, tough things.
1: Mm, no, it's incredible stuff. Now, let's talk about the genetics because this is, you know, this is where you've really um, done some amazing work. How is it that we're able to use the sort of genetics of these unique creatures we have in Australia to, to understand, you know, humans more?
0: Well, really, all genetics depends on differences. You know, Mendel's genetics depended mm. on differences between you know, purple flowers and white flowers. And we do a lot of work um, actually manipulating the genes of a mouse and using mutants. Well, differences between species are just as good Mm. markers as these differences. So that's what I've used is differences between kangaroos and platypuses and emus and now dragons to look at very, very fundamental changes that, that occurred. Because we're looking back, every time you compare something, if you compare a human and a mouse, you're looking back at a common ancestor about 70 million years ago. If you look at a kangaroo and a human, you're looking back about 150 million years ago, platypus and a human even longer, 166 million years ago, then you can keep playing this game and look back further and further and further at our common ancestor to figure out what it was like, what its genes were like, what its chromosomes were like, and then you can figure out well what's happened differently in a kangaroo and a person, for instance.
1: Do, do you see things that we have, like problems that we have, like say, for example, Alzheimer's and other diseases and so forth, do we see these in these other mammals as well, or are they just not long-lived enough, or they don't come up.
0: There's a lot of of work that's being done in diseases, particularly of dogs, mm. uh, because dogs have been bred to be very inbred, so these diseases pop out. So a lot of eye diseases, for instance, um, a lot of genes have been identified in a dog, and they're the same genes as a human. And if there's something wrong with those genes, it causes uh, some sort of a a, a problem. Mm.
2: So you mentioned that one of the species you're looking at is a bearded dragon and as a climate scientist when yeah, I read that, I, that yeah. I, my eyes opened because I thought you're,
0: you're looking at how temperature changes can affect the sex of the bearded dragon is that right? Yes that's been something that uh, in the last 10 or 12 years um, I got together with our colleagues at the University of Canberra who are ecologists and work with these dragon lizards and I worked on molecular, molecules and genes and chromosomes so we got together and looked at this species thinking that it would be really interesting because it seemed to have genetic sex, you know, genes and chromosomes determined sex. And we showed, yes, that's true. But... If you incubate the eggs at a high temperature, they're all girls. So temperature actually overrides the genes in a way that we'd like to know about because it's very important to know how the environment interacts with genes and that's a very good model system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are other species that do this as well, are there? Or well, this dragon the reason egg- we chose the dragon in the first place is uh, it has relatives that don't do it by genes and chromosomes at all. They do it entirely by temperature. Mm. Well we didn't realise that our dragon actually does both. Huh?
1: It's, it's fascinating stuff. I, I find you know if anything to do with evolution just blows me away. The ways I always try and work out. Okay, what's the advantage here? Why why would all of the eggs be female at higher temperatures? What's the you know what's the
0: goal? Well. People who work on alligators and alligators, as I'm sure you know, have temperature sensitive mm. sex, uh, will tell you that it's sort of a population control device because we did some work long ago with alligators in the Mississippi. Uh, and what tends to happen is the female alligator prefers a cooler place to make her nest and lay her eggs. And those will be female determining eggs. Uh, eggs. But when there's a lot of alligators around, some of those females will have to build their nests on the top of the levees, Mm. which are hot, and there'll be male producing nests. So when there aren't many alligators around, you tend to get a lot of females and that expands the population very quickly. Uh, When uh, there's a lot of alligators around, you start getting a lot of males and you get a male competition and that's probably good for the population too. So it's quite a clever device. But what is happening now, of course, is with the climate changing, uh alligators you know we might end up in a world full of male alligators and female (laughs) turtles and that's not good work very well
1: yeah i'd prefer the other way around um the the interesting thing is there though is that and you know lynn i'm amazed lynn hasn't jumped in with this but we're talking about them sensing climate not weather so it's not a couple of hot days here we're talking about are we we're talking about more extended patterns that they're, they're adjusting to. Is that, is that right?
0: We don't really know for the dragon. I think there's a huge amount of work on the alligator, and mm. we know that there's a window of some weeks in which the temperature fluctuates, of course, but it sort of averages out. I don't think one hot day will turn you into a male. I right, think it yeah. needs some more sustained. but uh, we don't really quite know what's going on in that egg, and that would be really important to know. Yeah, so, that's so disturbing in itself to that Yeah, know, that's yeah. amazing. So what are the next it sounds like
2: the dragon research you've been doing, are these been trials? is the what's the next stage? Well,
0: we've already taken a next step which we didn't expect, and that is to look at the sex reverse dragons and see if they made any copies of genes that normal dragons don't make. And surprisingly there are some altered gene copies, some RNA that doesn't work. And that's very specific to the sex-reverse females. So we think uh, that is telling us that what is happening is a stress response to heat, which is feeding into a whole lot of genes that we know are involved in what we call epigenetic silencing. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I know these these genes from way back, because I actually started off life looking at X chromosome inactivation. It's the same genes doing the same jobs.
1: It's fascinating to me that um, we we see the activation because many of these genes are in in many of the different animals you've talked about, and we see their activation quite significantly in some animals and not in others. Do we do we have any idea of why? I mean, you mentioned the, the you know with alligators and so forth, that, you know, it's it's sort of an advantage population wise, but there must be similar advantages in other species as well, and yet we don't see some of these things being activated. Do we have a feel for what turns these things on?
0: I think but people don't quite realise is that the genome is terribly conserved in all vertebrates. Mm. Uh, You know, the chromosomes may look a bit different, but essentially the same genes doing the same jobs um, in a human and a mouse and a kangaroo and a fish even, and probably even lower chordates. uh, And probably the mechanisms that turn them off and on are very, very old. So we're probably looking at the same kinds of genes doing the same sorts of things, for instance, like putting uh, methyl groups onto DNA to silence it. And we see that in dragons, we see that in people. So all these mechanisms are very, very old.
2: Well, that was going to be my next question. As someone who knows very, very little about genes and genetics, uh, how is this kind of research, uh, how can it be used in in our human understanding of humans and human genetics? So if we get hotter, are we going to start? Being all females or are we going to have a stress response, do you think? <laughs> well, That's a very I, dumb question, <laughs> I know, but I had to ask it.
0: <laughs> There's been a lot of interest in that and for a long time people have studied the interaction of temperature. But, of course, we're stuck at 37 degrees, so temperature-sensitive sex is not going to work very well for us or for birds for that matter. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we may get stressed when it gets hot, but it probably isn't going to affect our sex.
1: Mm. And, and that, just, just on that, that idea of, you know, warm-blooded versus cold blood, I mean, we don't think that way anymore, do we? I mean, there's kind of a spectrum of variation between the two. Is that right?
0: That's something I don't know a whole lot about, but it's certainly true in reptiles that, you know, they have a whole range Mm. and they modify their temperature mainly by their behaviour. You know, if they're cold, they go and bask in the sun. Uh, Whereas, you know, if we're cold, uh, we have a shivering response that warms us up.
1: Yeah. Now, um, Jenny, before when we first got you into the studio, before we went back on air, uh, you were talking about the fact that since getting the award, you've you've had to become an expert on everything because people <laughs> can just ask you any question. What, what are some of your favourites? I mean, what, what are the things you've suddenly become an expert on?
0: Well, I seem to have become an expert, not just on animal genomes and sex, but, but also women in science and science education and um, leadership and even uh, uh, research integrity. Is that right? <laughs> so, and of course, I have opinions on all these things, of course, but uh, yeah. I have to be a little bit careful not to overstep my my mark. But I'm do not you, an expert.
1: Do you find it amusing that you know the day before you weren't, but the day after you? I mean, obviously, with with your research work, you know, you've been an expert in this the whole time, and that hasn't changed. But Post the award, you know, one day before you, you win an expert in these, uh, <laughs> research integrity and you know, don't ask Jenny, but the day after you get the award, all of a sudden, you- well, you, you know, there's
0: a lovely line in George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion that I think survives in My Fair Lady, and it goes, um, the difference between a lady and a flower girl is not in the way she behaves, but the way she's treated. Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, everybody's been very, very nice to me right now. I mean, I love it. I hope it, it continues at least a month or two. Or a year.
1: Or a year for a, <laughs> yes, whole year, yeah, nice yeah. To- a whole year. that would be nice.
0: A So what happens now? You're the the...
2: You know the PM's Prize for Science. You've got a lovely cheque that you can do some excellent research with. And do you have to, I don't know, check in with the PM every three months and give him an update
0: or I'd what? I'd be happens? very happy to. I'm mm. offering right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he listens to the show. So.
0: <laughs> Big I, fan.
1: I, I, I'm not sure he does, but <laughs> well, it's it's just. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And you you get the award. So the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is that? Does that have to go back into research or is no, that? No, I can
0: do whatever I like it. You can go like and buy it. the Ooh, What I've told people I'm going to do is recover the the living room couch.
1: love it. It's fantastic. And, and the research now, so the, the dragons are the thing. Um, what else is going on in, in the lab for you?
0: I'm involved. I, I don't have a lab of my own anymore, um, but I have many uh, ex-students, ex-postdocs, um, old colleagues mm. and collaborators who are working on all kinds of fascinating things. So not just dragons, but, but also birds. Uh, I'm doing some work with some Chinese collaborators on falcons. I never cool. thought I'd be doing that, but... Uh, You know, it's all fascinating stuff and it's all terribly interconnected. I'm even very, very interested at the moment in some fish that change their sex. Right. And they don't change their sex in the egg. They change it as adults. Now, if a female blue wrasse observes that there's no male around, she'll change sex.
1: See, I love these. um, (laughs) They... I have marine aquariums I think called Antheas um, and there's these fish and they swim in little schools and there's usually about six of them there's only ever one male I yeah. think. and if that male dies one of the other females says well, oh, we'll just, I've got to step up and they suddenly become a male I yes. find this incredible how they can first of all
0: in two weeks yeah and
1: it's not it's not like they're thinking about it you know I mean I know fish no. have got great memories we've we proved that, but, but they're not, you know, there's some biological process that says... At
2: a school level. At a
1: school level that says, the other fish near me don't have a male. You know, how, how the...
0: Well, again, it seems like there might be a stress response fitting into this, Uh, and I'm very interested in that whole stress pathway, but um, this is uh, an ex-student of mine who's now a professor in New Zealand who's doing this study, and I've always been terribly interested because in the blue wrasse, uh, it is size, so the female, when the male disappears, Mm. the female uh, looks around, am I the biggest female? If she's the biggest, she'll turn into a male very quickly. In minutes, she'll be behaving differently. In hours, her colour starts to change. In two weeks, her over has disappeared, she has a testis, she's making sperm. So what this group done has done is look at what genes are active during that whole process. And that's turning out to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah.
1: And that means she must have all of the required genetic information to make those pigments absolutely. to it's all there. But for some reason, they're either not switched on at that, that point. Yes, yeah.
0: exactly. So there are genes there for the male colour, but they're suppressed. And if the suppression is lifted, bingo, she gets a blue head.
1: Mm. Oh, it's, it's, it's incredible stuff. So in terms of you, you've seen some incredible changes in genetics over the last sort of 20 or so years. I mean, it, it must be amazing now when you when you look back at, you know, the old roll up the sleeves and do it the hard way that you, you would have done earlier in your career. And now the, just the capacity to sequence things and so forth, because you've sequenced a few things yourself.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, I was involved in the Human Genome Project uh, as part of a comparative committee. And my job was to pull all the uh, gene mapping data together from all sorts of animals including mm. fish and right. cows and rabbits and everything else uh, and that was kind of the forerunner to the Human Genome Project so I was asked very early if uh, we, we could provide a marsupial to do a marsupial genome project and of course I said yes, yes, sequence the kangaroo it cost $80 million then and the Australian government was uh, not very interested <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise uh, They unfortunately decided, no, no, it's American money. We have to do an American marsupial. So they did a a Brazilian possum. But we were very, very closely involved in all of that. There are a lot of Australians. And that kind of gave us a taste of things. And we were able then to do a kangaroo some years later. And now we're being asked all the time, well, you know, can we do a bandicoot? Can you you send us some feather glider liver by return mail?
1: Right. (laughs) 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 It's fantastic. there's... Uh, we have this sort of international collaboration going on with regards to seeds and this seed bank that is stored, you know, I think somewhere in, um, you know, not far from North Bali, and it's cold. Um, Is there a similar scenario with regards to genetic material for the variety of species around, especially some of the... there
0: very much is. I mean, there are lots of of little repositories all Mm -hmm. over the world. Uh, You just have to know who's got platypus material, who's got koala genes. Uh, But there's a, a group that I've belonged to since its inception called... The um, genome 10K, and it's trying to really uh, make sure that people know what there is and where it is. Mm -hmm. The aims are to sequence every vertebrate. Yeah. How, so it's a lovely, we? yeah. well, not bad. I think we're up to about 400 or so now. Uh, and it's a very pleasant group because we're not fighting about your snake is better than my snake uh, because we're going to do everything. But it's trying to coordinate and it's done a very good job with the birds. Quite recently, there's a yeah. number of birds have been done with big consortia. So the idea is that we'll know where the specimens are. Some of these specimens are really hard to get. They have to be. They have to be taken with uh, the quality of DNA in mind because nowadays we're trying to get longer and longer and longer reads of sequence so mm. that we can put it together a lot better.
1: Mm. Have you got a favourite? I mean, when you look at the genetics of these things, I mean, you mentioned the platypus, but is there a favourite sort of animal that you just find the the genetics and what's turned on and what's turned off just extraordinary? Is there something that stands out?
0: Um, Well, I think we're going to find a lot of similarities between all sorts of different animals. So it's probably more important to choose models that you can really uh, easily get hold of. You can easily send it around. You can consolidate all the data with, uh, with humans and with mice. Um, and I'm very pleased that we looks like we're going to be able to get a new model marsupial going very shortly.
2: Wow. Um, now, look, I have to ask, you are the first female winner of the PM's Prize for Science, And we have a lot of female co-hosts and a lot of women guests on the show. So what is the one smartest thing that you did to get to where you are? The
0: one smartest thing. The best decision um, you made. Well, a lot of decisions I made were really not decisions. I mean, going to Berkeley for a PhD was key, but at the time it was just you know, the the way the wind was blowing. I was sort of had enough of Adelaide and wanted some adventure. So I said the first thing that came into my head, which was, oh, I think I'll go to Berkeley and do a PhD. And I'll swear I'd never thought anything of the sport. Uh, So they were good decisions, but not smart decisions. The other decision Uh, was when I became pregnant, Uh, it was in the days when, you know, what you were supposed to do was resign your position and take on a a part-time demonstratorship, you know, which is suitable for young mothers. Well, uh, I didn't have that luxury because my husband was studying at the moment. I was the sole breadwinner. So, you know, I, I... Kept my job and I kept my lab, but most of my friends didn't. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get back into it, and I don't know that that's changed a great deal. So these were very important decisions in my career, but they weren't made by me. In fact, you know, I I confess to have been terribly unambitious as a, as a teenager and, a, and a, a student, and thought you know all I wanted is a nice, comfortable life back in Australia and. It really took sort of getting inflamed by the science itself to make me realise that, oh, you know, I, I can really do something and I can do something new. Uh, this sort of doesn't occur to you when you're a humble young student and it's very heady.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible. I mean, hearing you you talk about that, it, it's very much the adversity that you you copped and, and had to deal with in a sense was what, what made you you know, go in the directions that, well, you, that know, you, I'm you went i often in.
0: asked them, did I face discrimination? And I would have said, well, no. But then when you look back, you can see a thousand mm. subtle things that happened that you were excluded from the boys club here or there. And, you know, you, you began to notice that there were things that they had that you didn't have. And you kind of took this all on the chin because there wasn't much choice in those days. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a real pattern. but it didn't really become overt till I was quite senior. And I suppose, you know, I was a, a good little um, humble lecturer and people uh, saw that I worked very hard and I did a good job and everything was fine. But when I became senior and more threatening, then, then I certainly did observe some quite specific discrimination. Um, oh, wow. Discrimination. Yeah, yeah look, Well, so, sorry, yeah. I'm going to ask
2: the question <laughs>
0: uh, How did you respond to that? Well, I was shocked. Mm. You know, I had not mm. expected it. And I did seek some help and I, I had, you no know, transcripts and things and began to realise that everything was just straight out of the book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Wow. Look, it's... <sighs> Yeah, it's still going on. Um, it's still happening and not hope- so
0: much. Not, I don't so, not think. as much, but it's still um, there. Mm. You no, know, I've been on so many committees for women in science yeah. over the years and it's uh, very frustrating because you see that things don't change. You know, we write report after report and things don't change. And this is not just the university or just Australia, this is the world, Mm. really. But I think in the last 10 years, the attitude has changed a great deal. Now, there's not so much eye-rolling when a a woman complains or when a woman expects to be treated fairly. Uh, So I think that is a necessary but not sufficient condition. Yeah. I think the practicalities are still lagging far behind, in particular, uh Helping a woman who is away, helping her keep the experiments going with some research assistance, mm-hmm. helping her to get back into the swing of things, helping her to stay in touch, which I think is absolutely critical and mm-hmm. really is not addressed. So I think those things are lagging behind, but I'm very encouraged that the academy has, has led um, a, a new uh, program called SAGE, which is yep. model on a British program and that. Really looks to the institutions to do very practical things on the ground and measure their effect. Yeah. I think that, and it's encouraging to me that. We thought there might be five or six institutions that reluctantly sign up. No, 40 of them clamouring to be part of this. Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. I think that's it's, a good sign. And it's good for everyone as well. That's the thing. If you've
2: got a better culture, it's not just better for the women scientists, it's better for the men scientists too. I, I
0: think that's going to be the key. Uh, you know, in the future, I, I would like to see a lot more flexibility in working hours and working types for men and women. Uh, I'd like to see men being able to spend a lot more time with their families, but also be a sculptor if they want to be, you know, why not?
1: Mm. It's, I mean, you must, you know, you work in genetics, diversity is strength in genetics and, and it gives you the outcomes that we see in the world and and not having that in our scientific disciplines and so forth for for everyone is just nonsense, it really I th- is bad. I think
0: L'Oreal... Um, the L'Oreal UNESCO, I won mm. the prize some years ago, and their motto really uh, goes to that. It says, um, "The world needs science, and science needs women." And right. I think that's that's you know why uh, work with half your workforce? That just mm. doesn't make sense. Why train all these women? And then don't employ them or force them out, out of the system early. That just doesn't, yeah, it make, doesn't sense make sense. It does make sense.
1: Throw the investment away. Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. And look, I, I hope you do become an expert in everything because you've <laughs> got you've got some great opinions to put out there. And now that you have the you know, you have that public voice to do it through through the prize, um, you know, I, I'm sure you'll offer a lot to a lot of people. Not
2: to Can- mention an excellent covered catch. Oh yeah, <laughs> but <laughs>
1: congratulations! Um, it is it is incredible achievement, and you know, as you say, you know, only one person gets this in the entire country a year. But you're very deserving. The work is spectacular, and we
0: wish you the best for the future. Well, thank you very much. It's it's really been fun to talk to both of you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Dr. Lindo, we're just a bit awestruck by. Her. I know I'm all uh, in a fluster. Great, great. Um, now, I just wanted to briefly mention something I saw in the news this week, and it's about these, um, human organoids, which you may or may not have heard about. Organoids are kind of like little small growing organs. They're like mini organs that researchers are working on. And essentially they're made from, you know, a variety of things. They can be made from stem cells. They can be made from, you know, manipulation of tissue. They can do a few things, but they, they function like an organ. So if you make a kidney organoid, that function, that little bit functions like a kidney mm-hmm. and you make a, brain organoid that functions like a mini sort of brain, you know, neurons and, and so forth. they're
2: designing these to look at genetics or Well, to- Well, they
1: actually, funnily enough, they have a variety of um, possible applications. I mean, one is um, the testing of drugs. So, I mean, you, the idea that you could test things outside of your body on the type of tissue that the drug would actually oh, work on. So right, if I yeah. wanted to test whether or not a heart drug would work on you, mm-hmm. I could create from some of your stem cells, I could create an organoid of heart tissue and then test that safely outside the body, which sounds great.
2: How small are we talking? Like, what's the, the noidy bit there? Is it 20% of the size of a full Oh, I think a lot smaller than that actually, okay, but, okay.
1: but they're getting bigger and bigger and it's interesting because there's a, a couple of groups that have done some interesting things lately, which is where this has come up, um, especially a group in um, at the Salt Institute and um, at the University of Pennsylvania where they've started putting some of the, impl- they're implanting these human organoids of um, sort of the visual cortex uh, into the visual cortex of of rats and mice. And so so
2: human eye bits into yeah. rats and mice.
1: And so an interesting thing is, is there's not much in the terms of ethics and so forth around yeah. this. At the moment. It's very new. And so similarly there's been a lot of work on brain organoids, which, you know, we're making little bits of brain. And these things are starting to get bigger and bigger and at some point, they'll get to the point where they start to be more, shall we say, substantial in the brain sense. Wow. And so they've been made in Petri dishes up mm-hmm. until now, but we're going to get very quickly to a point where we're putting bits of these into live Rodents.
2: So you're talking about a mouse with a human brain. Is that what you're saying? Well, to not, me, not quite shame? a human brain. <laughs> <laughs> a tiny human. But you know, bits, of, bits bit.
1: of, And so it becomes very interesting as to, you know, what the ethics are of these yeah. scenarios because we haven't been able to do this before. It's kind of like that guy who wants to do the head transplant. You know, like, it's like, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Everyone thinks they're crazy, but it's like, well, you know. Uh, we, so
2: who would be the organization that would. Sort of police that and make well,
1: these decisions. Well, you know, initially it'd be the big funding agencies. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, the NHMRC, the NIH, um, over in the US and, and so forth, and National Health Services in, in the UK. Um, so they'd have to look at ways in which we would monitor this and make sure we're not overstepping. So, yeah. but it's fascinating technology and it's really, you know, now that we're saying, you know, it's not petri dish anymore. They're Mm. starting to actually put them into living creatures and get them to work.
2: Yeah, it sounds a bit like the matrix matrix has been cracked and these things are just going to happen, advance more and more and more rapidly, And and this
1: is often what happens in research is it starts very, very slowly and then all of a sudden bang Mm. and legislators have to catch up because the stuff moves too quickly. And yeah. we saw that was around stem cells and there were some knee-jerk reactions in terms of legislation in certain countries. And so we've had to pair it back, but we'll watch this space. It's yeah. fascinating stuff. We've got some really good work going on in Australia, actually, in organoids. So yeah, funny stuff. <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there, folks, because we're out of time and we have to hand over to the team from Eat It. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show today, Dr. Lyndon. Thanks so much for
2: having you in. Thanks for having me.
1: And uh, we will be back next week with more science for you. I think we've only got about seven shows left for the year.
2: Yeah, Christmas Christmas is
3: racing up to us, isn't it?
1: Anyway, I'm Dr Shane. Thanks again for listening. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next week.
3: This has been a podcast from 3RRR
2: 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.